All right. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been talking about the temple and what purpose it serves in Jewish life. And the temple is one, uh, the topic of the temple is, is something that can, you can go right over the top of it and you can, um, you can cover it on the surface, which we have done. We've looked at uh, uh, First Kings um, 5 through 9. We've read those passages in there as Solomon begins to build his temple. And, and so you can look at it just as Solomon's building the temple and the people of God are you know going to worship there and it's a big deal for them and that kind of thing. But you can also dive in incredibly deep, which I think is is also important, at least at one point in our lives, to, to take a deeper look at what the significance of the temple really is for the Jew and uh, how it's thought of and how it's conceived. Because to be honest with you, it's it, 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 to a, a large degree, it is something that often escapes us. I don't know about you, but I, I have never uh, sacrificed an animal. And I have never had that, much less had that a part of my regular everyday life, going to the temple or, you know, b- being, being a Jew. And so that's just not something that's in my, in my uh, vernacular and really my thought process. And so it, sometimes when we read the Old Testament and we see a lot of these processes that go on at the temple, it can be very daunting for us and something that just sort of goes over our head. We don't really understand it. And so over the last few weeks or the last couple of weeks, we have talked about the significance of the temple and what theologically it really is for the Jew. So two weeks ago, we talked about the the temple having this sort of structure to it where it's divided into really three parts. There's the outside court that is meant to signify, uh, has a lot of earth symbolism. So uh, it has the sea, has uh, the, the heart of the earth in the altar sitting right out there in the courtyard, the people of Israel who represent the nations of the world coming around to worship the Lord there. And then the in, inside the temple, you have two divisions there inside the walls of the temple. One is the holy place where there is a lot of celestial imagery, uh, sky, stars, uh, the, that kind of imagery. Um, and then you have the, the, the last place in there, uh, the holy of holies, which represents really the throne room of God. And so you've, you've got this sort of flow to it that represents sort of the cosmos, the all of creation, the threefold division of creation, the terrestrial world, the sky, the celestial uh, world, and then the throne room of God. And so the 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 Jew through the through the high priest really um, starts off on the outside and walks closer and closer into the throne room of God, where they are able to sort of approach the glory of God one time a year. And so the temple, we uh, I think Dave, um, to borrow an illustration, David Maxwell helpfully gave uh, a couple of weeks ago, is that the, the temple is kind of this portal, if you will, into the throne room of God, and, and it was seen as that. So you can imagine how significant that is. Well, then last week, what we talked about is that one of the reasons why 
that is really important is because Israel's temple um, was a place where the priest experienced God's unique presence. And going all the way back to the beginning of scripture, Eden, the Garden of Eden, was a place where Adam walked and talked with God, experiencing his presence. We get a little bit of glimpse of this in God coming when uh, down to the garden and walking in the cool of the day when Adam and Eve sin. He comes down to meet with them, and they know he's coming. Um, we also see a lot of this in some Jewish literature that we talked about last week as well. Uh, after the Bible, you get some Jewish literature of how they understood the Garden of Eden to be. And we see there it's reflected also as, as kind of this temple with Adam being the first real priest of that temple where he met with God. And so, um, so Eden has this kind of image to it of heaven and earth overlapping, heaven and earth coming together and God walking with his people. And so Eden signifies God's meeting with his people. But then when Adam sins, you have to understand man was removed from the presence of God and, 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 and kicked out. And uh, Adam had a, a real task. And Adam, what we saw, had failed to guard the temple and he sinned and he let in this foul serpent to defile, you might consider it, the sanctuary. And he lost that priestly role. And so what happens in the book of Genesis is the cherubim takes over the responsibility of guarding and keeping the garden temple, as it were. And Adam is left uh, to roam. He is now unclean and has to, has to be uh, kept out. And so what we see then in Solomon's temple is that there is a lot of Edenic imagery that calls back to the Garden of Eden and looks at uh, and and has all of the all of these um, flowers and palm trees and fruits and gourds and all kinds of uh, stones, gold, onyx, water, east-facing entrances. Uh, the The temple had this uh, imagery to it that when you when you walk up to it, you get the sense that what they're uh, bringing in is not just. Uh, uh, entering into the presence of God, but also uh, this idea of, of restoring the Garden of Eden. We see that this actually dovetails quite nicely with what we see Solomon's role being. A lot of the, the terms used for Solomon, uh, once God had given him peace on all sides, then he, then he begins this, this temple sanctuary. And so uh, we've talked about Solomon being this sort of new Adam, uh, David's line establishing this sort of new Adam type role. And what does Adam need but a, a Garden of Eden? So essentially what you're getting in the story of Solomon is, is essentially walking backwards from, you know, kind of fallen man in, back into the Garden of Eden as they build the temple. And then they're going to walk right back out of it after the temple's over. But um, but. But essentially, the temple signifies both this gar the Garden of Eden and this sort of portal into the presence of God. So a place where heaven and earth overlap in the Garden of Eden and, and a place where man can uh, uh, commune with God, once again, come into the presence of God. Okay, so I think for the most part, though that's, that's really difficult to wrap our minds around, what my hope has been is that it's allowed us at least a little uh, glimpse into the weight of the temple, the feeling of the temple, how a Jew would kind of 
really think about the temple and what they would think it is and what they would think they're accomplishing there. Because when we turn to the rest of the pages of scripture, the temple imagery does not leave us. We actually get more of it. We've talked about how John in, in the opening chapter of the gospel of John tells us that, that God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus. And he says, we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And what that signifies to a reader who is familiar with the temple imagery, we see he dwelt, he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. That's a temple imagery. That's holy of holies imagery. We beheld, we looked upon the glory of God, which only the high priest is able to do that. And so John is making a really radical statement there about Jesus as the temple of God. So we the, the terminology of the temple doesn't leave us after uh, Solomon's temple and after the Garden of Eden. In fact, Paul is then going to call us who are members of Christ's body, he's going to call us a temple of the living God. And then Peter is going to tell us we are being built up into the house of God with Christ as our head. We are being built up and into a, into a dwelling place for God. And so he's depicting this church body as this temple that we ourselves are a place where God dwells. So the, the terminology doesn't leave us. But it gets really difficult when we get into the book of Revelation. I know that probably a lot of you have read the book of Revelation, and I know that there's probably a tons of, obviously, tons of questions about the book of Revelation. Um, and so we're going to cover some of that tonight. And I realize that some of the things that I'm going to say may be, may be a little bit new to some of you. Um, some of you may disagree completely with some things that I say and some positions that I take on some of this stuff, and that's okay. Um, we can still talk about it and we can disagree and, and still be all right. Um, so we're just going to go through it. And so my hope is that we start to see what John is actually doing at the end of the book of Revelation, which is, I think, incredibly brilliant and is done in a way that only, um, only this way of writing can really accomplish. A lot of people, when they get to the book of Revelation, always ask the question. I, I've had this question, I think, a million times. If I've, if I've, ta I've taught it, uh, taught the book of Revelation probably four or five times, maybe. And, um, and I always end up getting this question. Why didn't John just say it straightforward? Why didn't he just, why didn't he just tell us? And there's a couple of different answers to that, and I, I, I hope some of this will straighten some of that out. But what you have to understand is that the Jews have gone to school, have been schooled by God for the last 2,000 years. I don't mean 2,000 years from our day back to Jesus. I mean, from Jesus' day all the way back to um, Moses, Abraham, they've been going to school. They've been growing in understanding what some of these images actually mean. If you can think about just for a minute the how weird it is that we would teach God would be angry with you, and so to satisfy his wrath, you need to kill 
a goat. Now, that seems like an oversimplification, but it, it's, it's also strange. If you really think about it, that's kind of strange. Well, the reason that we just sort of accept it and we just, we take it as, well, yeah, that's true. Of course, that's, what's, that's what they had to do is because we've been taught that's how it was. God has been teaching the Jews what all of these symbols actually mean. And it's not until the New Testament that it starts to be revealed to us that all of these things that we did, they were school for us. They were teaching us what the significance of Christ actually is. And so that doesn't change when we come to things like, you know, it's obviously true of things like um, sacrifice and things like that. Uh, But it's also true of things like the temple and the garden. Those have deep, enriched meanings. And when John talks about them, all of their meaning comes into the interpretation of Revelation. So hopefully going to lay some of that out tonight. And I'm sure there's going to be questions at the end. And I'd be happy to take those. And along the way, if you have questions, you can feel free to uh, type them in the chat box and I'll, I'll address them as, as I can. Um, first things first, as the Bible comes to its close in the book of Revelation, um, John has this vision of the world to come. And so we're, we're at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 21 and 22 primarily is where we're going to be focused on tonight. And John is going to have this sort of vision of what happens next after all of this stuff is over, what is going to take place. And so John describes the world to come in verse one of Revelation 21 as a new heavens and new earth, a new heavens and new earth. But what's interesting is the very next verse, he goes on to describe it as a city and it, and then describes it as garden-like and then describes it in the shape of a temple, which is, I'm going to be honest with you, a little bit weird because when you read one and two, which I'm going to do right now, let's just read that in our verse packet there. It's the third verse and fourth verse down. It says, then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So he immediately turns from this new heavens, new earth, and starts describing it in ways like a city. And he eventually, here in just a minute, we're going to read where he starts to use a lot of garden imagery and a lot of temple imagery. And so I want to walk through the garden imagery that he uses and the temple imagery that he uses, and then really ask the question, how do we think about the new heavens and new earth? What is it? I would half expect if somebody says, I saw new heavens and new earth for them to describe it. Um, for them to, to say, this is what the ground felt like. And this is what the, you know, the sky looked like. And this is what, you know, it's a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, a sky and a terrestrial ground. But he doesn't really do that. He starts to describe it with images that reflect a garden, reflect a temple and, uh, and things like that. And so let's unpack those a little bit. Um, heaven and earth in the old Testament sometimes is a way of referencing 
uh, uh, referring to Jerusalem and its temple. And what you're going to notice is that Isaiah 65, 17 to 18, is one of those texts that sort of illustrates this, um, that Jerusalem and its temple were kind of seen to the Jew as the epicenter of the world, the epicenter of creation. And there's good reason for that, as we've seen over the last two weeks. Why is that? Because the temple is the cosmos. And there we actually have a portal to the throne room of God. The temple reflects the created world. But then the temple is also like the Garden of Eden, where heaven and earth overlap, where we can enter, where we can meet with God, where God can meet with his people. And so um, Jerusalem and, it, and, and its temple sometimes have this uh, uh, sort of connection to heaven and earth. When we talk about heaven and earth, that, that's, that's, that's it in some cases. And so you see that a little bit reflected um, in, uh, what, what passage did I say here? Isaiah uh, 65, 17 and 18, where he says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. This is where John pulls this passage from. New heavens, new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And then look at what he says in verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy for her people and gladness. So the new heavens and new earth have this sort of, uh, this kind of connection as sort of Hebrew writing would indicate that there's sort of that Jerusalem takes that that uh, center, that epicenter of new heavens and new earth. So John does not, uh, he doesn't describe all the contours and the details of the new creation. What he does is he portrays it as this arboreal, meaning it has lots of trees and, and things like this, like this garden city temple. And whose dimensions, and this is particularly important, the dimensions of this temple that he describes in Revelation and the architectural features of it are drawn in significant portion from Ezekiel 40 to 48, where that section in Ezekiel, toward the end of Ezekiel, where it, it, it's Ezekiel describing, he's, he's prophesying about a future temple. And so John, in describing the new heavens and new earth, takes a lot of the dimensions and a lot of the descriptions from Ezekiel and imports them into this new heavens and new earth as he describes uh, what, it, what it's like. And for one, we see that it has precious stones, and these precious stones form the foundation. And these precious stones, the, the description of them clearly allude to Solomon's temple, which we know also was overlaid with gold and um, whose foundation was compo composed of precious stones. And we also know that the priest walked into the Holy of Holies with precious stones hanging around his neck. So we, we see that in, um, uh, in Revelation 21, 18 uh, to 21, 1 Kings 5, 17, 6, 20 to 22, 7, 9 to 10. Uh, I want to read a couple of those here. The wall, this is John talking about this future uh, new heavens, new earth temple. He says, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, second sapphire, the third agate, 
fourth emerald, fifth onyx, sixth carnelian, seventh chrysolite, eighth beryl, ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. First Kings 5.17, in the king, as, at the king's command, they queried, uh, they queried our, out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. Uh, 20 to 22, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. That's a, that's a cube, if, in case you're wondering. He overlaid it with pure gold. That's the Holy of Holies overlaid with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary was overlaid with gold. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping to the, uh, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. Um, all right, so you can see there's connections there in John, as he's describing the new heavens and new earth, he's describing it in these in terms of stones that's very similar to Solomon's temple. He's laying out what really is an end times end times temple. That's what he's describing here. Um, the city we see was also built in a cube. The city that John is describing is also built in a cube which um, is further connected to the, the temple because, as I said, as we saw in the passage we just read, that it's based on the dimensions of the Holy of Holies, where its length and breadth and height were also of equal measure. So we see in Revelation 21, 16, where John says the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with, with his rod, which is also what Ezekiel does to his temple, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So this city is also a giant cube, um, at, just as Solomon's, as we saw, um, was also a, a, a basically a giant cube there in 1 Kings 6, 20 to 22. So John is clearly laying out this city here for us, and he's not doing it arbitrarily. Um, this is meant, in, in any Jew, this is the point, I think, is that any Jew reading this passage and at the end of Revelation has to be seeing this thing's a temple that he's describing, the giant temple coming out of the sky. But but there's some significance in the dimensions themselves. Now, I don't mean necessarily in the numbers that he presents, though I think there's probably some significance to those as well, but, it, but more in the fact that he's describing it as a cube, 
that has incredible significance into what John is driving at and what the Lord is actually showing him as a, as a Jew who has these deeply entrenched feelings towards, towards the temple in seeing this imagery. So not only all are, are all of those things happening, but we also see that this new heavens, new earth, this Jerusalem, this temple, this garden that's being presented to us, that nothing unclean shall ever come into it. And uh, you have to recall that in the Old Testament, uncleanness was to be kept out of the tabernacle or the temple precincts. They're to be excluded from the city and are and and all um, uh, are from the temple and and all unclean things purged. Well, what do we see? But that before we ever get to this city, all the unclean things are thrown into the lake of fire forever. Everything is cast out. Everything is purged. All the unclean things are thrown into the lake of fire. So let's take a look at some of these passages here, especially since we have a little bit of time. Revelation 21, 27, he says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we know that this reflects clearly the temple in Numbers, or the tabernacle in Numbers 19, 13, whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. Numbers 19.20, if a man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him. He is unclean. Second Chronicles 23.19, he stationed the... Uh, uh, um, gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one should enter who was in any way unclean. Um, in verse 16, the, the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord to the inner, to the, and into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out of uh, to the brook Kidron. So, there's all, all of this uh, excoriating of anything unclean, getting rid of it, purging it. And, and all of this follows on the heels of everything in before John's uh, eternal dwelling uh, being cast into the lake of fire forever. But then we also see John describe the new heavens and new earth this way. He says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and the murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But as for, in 21 verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's, those are really important images that, um, that we should think about for just a minute is that all of this is sort of meant to parallel. We're seeing here um, sort of a description of a temple and, um, and, uh, and, and, and that's evident based on the way John describes what he's seeing and what based on what's being de uh, depicted for him there. He's drawing the parallels between the, uh, the temple and this new heavens and new earth. 
But as we see, Adam's purpose in the first garden temple was to do what? We've talked about this a number of times. His purpose, his job was to expand its boundaries. Remember, have dominion. Here's the land. Here's the animals. Here's the created order. Adam and Eve, as my vice regents, go and subdue it, being made in the image of God. And so they're to take the borders, the boundaries of the garden temple and expand its boundaries until it fills the earth. And they subdue it with this kind of garden of Eden. And so the earth is then going to be what? what? If that garden of Eden is the place where God meets with his people, then if Adam expands the boundaries until they cover the entire earth, the, the earth is going to be completely filled with God's glorious presence. So Adam is charged with exactly that. Take the borders, take the boundaries of the Garden of Eden, spread it around the world, and God will then, in his glorious presence, dwell with humanity uh, on earth in uh, com- a completeness, if you will. And so Adam's failure led in time to the reestablishment then of the tabernacle and temple, which is why the tabernacle and temple have those images in them connecting back to the Garden of Eden. Because remember, what is what is Israel's responsibility? They are to expand the borders. We pointed that out, or I pointed that out with David, what he was doing in spearheading the kingdom of God. He's expanding its borders. Why is he doing that? Because he's filling the earth with the worship of God. He's subduing his enemies. He's casting out anyone that's unclean. He is welcoming in anyone who seeks to worship the Lord and pay homage to God. He is expanding the borders of the kingdom of God as Adam was supposed to. Solomon now is charged with expanding the borders, expanding the boundaries, bringing other people into the worship of God. That's his goal. That's his task. Bring everyone into the worship of God. And that happens at the temple. All right. So both of these, the the temple and the tabernacle, are patterned after the model of Eden. And they're constructed to symbolize the entire cosmos, the all the created order. This is the epicenter of creation right here. It's where we meet with God. This is the thing that needs to expand and fill the borders of the earth so that everyone eventually, all the nations, will be worshiping God. Remember, they are a kingdom of priests, after all. And so it symbolized the entire cosmos in order to signify that Israel's purpose as a corporate Adam, they're a body of really like Adam, okay, was to extend the borders by faithfully obeying God and spreading his glorious presence throughout the earth. Okay, now, in Revelation, the new heavens and new earth are described with this sort of temple language. Because, why? We know from the Garden of Eden, God's goal, what is, what is his goal? What, what, what is his purpose with Adam and Eve? It's to fill the earth with the worship of himself. That's what Adam's role is. That's what his his job is. Not just have dominion and subdue the earth, but it's subdue the earth to the glory of God. It's to bring 
people into the worship of God. That's that's his 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 goal is to universally expand the temple of his glorious presence. And so this new heavens and new earth are described with this temple imagery to communicate this idea that this is what God is doing. He is bringing his presence to earth and filling the borders of the new earth with his glory. All unclean things are out. All clean things, all redeemed things are in. And everything of which Old Testament temples were symbolizing. That's what the temple was meant to teach. I said at the beginning that the Jews were going to school in the Old Testament. They were learning what has happened as a result of the fall, what the consequences of that were or, or was, what the what 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 now is their what their job? What are they supposed to do now? What is the nature of their hearts as a result of sin? They're they're going to school. They're learning all of these things, all of these images, and they all come to bear here at the end of Revelation as God communicates through the prophet John what he's about to do, what he is about to accomplish, and and still as we sit here today, what he is still yet to fully accomplish. But he's bringing his glorious presence, and it's, it's coming to pass. And all the Old Testament, in its temples, the Garden of Eden, in their connection to one another, all of it is meant to symbolize that. The purpose is to commune with God, to come and meet with God, and to see his glory spread amongst the nations. And so the Garden of Eden, the, the cosmos itself, will finally, at this point, John is, is saying to us, will finally be, be materialized. And there, there, there's no need for an actual physical temple. So some will read um, Revelation, and they will pick up on what John is describing here, and they will see what he's describing as an actual physical temple. And there are probably some that, that think that, and, you know, we can disagree on that, I guess. But um, John actually tells us in Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple, no, no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So not every time, I mean, John has gone to great lengths here to connect what he's seeing to a temple. He's described it as a, a cube. He, he's described all the, all the attributes of it sound a lot just like Solomon's temple. There's a lot of Garden of Eden imagery. There's a lot of these things coming, coming into this image to describe it like a temple only to get to the end and go, there's no temple. And then not only that, but we don't always get the description of the temple being a brick and mortar structure. Remember, as I said, Jesus describes himself as a temple. Paul describes the church body, I mean, the actual people that comprise the church, as a temple. Uh, Peter does as well. So just because there's description of the temple and the words of the temple and things like that doesn't necessarily mean it's brick and mortar. And so he, John tells us straight out, there's no, there's no temple in the city. In fact, the lamb... God 
Almighty, they are the temple. Well, what does that mean? The Lamb is the temple? God Almighty is the temple? What? What on earth does that even mean? What it means is that this new heavens, new earth, Jerusalem, temple, garden that he is seeing and describing to us are meant to help us to understand that what's about to happen is that God's tabernacling, his special presence is what's on display here. What John is trying to communicate is that just like what you see in the temple, just like what we felt in the temple and what we know is true of the Garden of Eden, where God's presence dwelt with man, that is what is going to happen. God is going to dwell with man. We're not talking brick and mortar here. We're talking that is what's going to happen. He is going to come and establish his presence. We're going to live together. Heaven and earth are going to be completely united where what we saw in the Garden of Eden was partial. Adam was to expand its borders. Here, this is not partial. This is total. This has been completed. The borders have been expanded till they occupy every ounce of the world. Solomon's job in building the temple, uh, the nations, not so much. He fell into idolatry. Not here. No unclean thing will ever enter it. All of those things were types and shadows. They were partial fulfillments. Here, the ultimate fulfillment takes place. But what he's saying and what we've seen throughout the entire New Testament, it was the divine presence that formally limited Israel's temple. Uh, it was formally limited to Israel's temple and has begun to expand through the church through the proclamation of the gospel. And it'll eventually fill the whole earth and heaven, becoming equal with it. So God's presence will eventually dwell where he cast out all evildoers. Everyone who does not submit to the rule and reign of Christ, everyone's going to be excoriating and banished into the lake of fire. And there he will come to dwell with his people once and for all. So the end times goal of the temple of the Garden of Eden is dominating the entire creation, and that's finally going to be fulfilled. But who's the one that accomplished it? Christ. Christ came and established his people, and right at this very second, as we speak, he is right now expanding its borders. As we speak right at this very moment, there are people all over the world that are submitting to Christ's rule and his reign in their hearts, right at this very moment. Christ is the one that's doing that. He is the one that's going to ensure that no unclean thing will ever enter the new heavens and new earth. Christ, as the new and better Adam, is currently accomplishing what Adam failed to do in the Garden of Eden. And he's doing it through his body, the church. You have heard me a number of times say from the pulpit that our goal as a church is very simple. We are to worship God, number one. And we are to bring other people into the worship of God. 
That's it. In that order, we are to worship God, number one. We are to bring other people into the worship of God. That is actually how we fulfill the mandate given to us by Christ himself, the new and better Adam. What Adam was supposed to do, exercise dominion, fill the borders of the earth. What Christ actually did was become the new Adam. And he told us, now go and make disciples. Fill the borders of the earth, in other words. All, all, it, it's, it's all given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And so our job is carrying out the, the mandate from Christ of making disciples. And eventually, he'll come back and eradicate all evil and, and dwell, with, dwell with us forever. Um, all right. So, the, so basically what's happening then, what John is describing here, because remember, the whole new heavens and new earth he's describing as a cube. Why is he doing that? Because the holy of holies is a, is a, a cube. And so the holy of holies of Israel's temple which was paved with gold walls and floors and ceilings and all that has now been expanded to cover the whole earth. So God's special presence, which was formerly limited to just the Holy of Holies has now burst forth to encompass the whole earth. So basically what John is depicting is that the whole earth has become the Holy of Holies. So to a Jew that's reading Revelation 21, who has eyes to see what John is describing here. He's saying, you know what the Holy of Holies is? I'm talking the whole earth is the Holy of Holies. The whole earth has not just become the temple. The whole earth has become the Holy of Holies. Square, this square cubic design. The whole earth has become this Holy of Holies. And which we find out is really kind of the point of when Christ dies and the temple curtain that guarded the Holy of Holies tears in two, right? That's unleashing the Holy of Holies on the rest of creation slowly. All right. So whereas, and we see this, this other really great connection too, whereas the high priest who wore God's name on his forehead, that that was the high priest. He walked into the Holy of Holies. He wore God's name on his forehead. He was the only person in Israel who could enter the Holy of Holies once a year and be in the presence of God. In the future, what does John say? All of God's people will become high priests because they will all have God's name on their foreheads, standing not one day out of the year, but forever in God's presence. Let's look at these last two passages here. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it. This is Exodus. Engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it to the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt uh, from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Then what does John say? So that, that's a Jew reading that, knowing full well what, what all goes into the temple and what the high priest is doing, all this kind of stuff. Now here this Jew has read about this, the new heavens and new earth being this cube. He's understanding it's the holy of holies and all of this. So what do you think the, that person would be reading when they hear Revelation 22, 4? They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They're immediately thinking of the high priest. Every single person, every single person that is in this new created order where 
Christ's rule and reign expands to all borders. Every single person is a high priest. Every single person is not welcome just one day a year into the presence of God, but every day welcomed into the presence of God because every single person is a completely clean, pure high priest. All right. I'm sure there have to be questions. Shannon, unmute yourself. So all this trouble that the Jews are going to to build this new temple is just for naught. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it's for naught. Um, one, it is school and it is, it is teaching. It is giving them understanding. Okay. But two, um, this might be a little uncomfortable, but it is, uh, it's condemnation for disobedience. They're going to worship other gods and they're going to be condemned for doing so. And they had every opportunity to their meet with God and bring the nations into submission to him. They don't do that in Judges. They don't do that uh, even in David's reign fully. They don't Wait, do that. I, I, I'm sorry. I should have made okay. myself more clear. I'm talking about the temple that the Jews are saving all this now. stuff up for. Now. Oh. Now. So this was the question that was asked last week, and that's why I said we're going we're gonna to get to it um this week uh i think so I, now hear me on this i think it's entirely possible i'd half expect as i said last week i would i fully expect at some point the jews are going to build a temple on top of the dome of the rock on top of where the dome of the rock is now on top of the temple mount and i, I fully expect a third temple to be built at some point it may be my great 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 grandkids life or it may be in mine i have no idea um, and I expect it to be by the end of the year, if it is in my life, uh, knowing how 2020 is going, but, um, <laughs> but I think, um, but, and, and while there, there may be a lot of foreign policy stuff that's involved in that, I don't think biblically, I don't think it's of, of any concern as far as the Bible is concerned. Some people probably even on this call are going to disagree with that. And that's, and that's fine. We can disagree. But um, I, I, uh, I just don't, I don't think that that's what the Bible is anticipating at all. Other well, Michael, um, all of these things you've talked about tonight that all the Jews would totally understand or should. <laughs> who, who constitutes the readership of what John has written here in Revelation? uh in the year 90 in the next century yeah these are well it's going to be a mixture of people who are diaspora people who are greeks people who are part of the seven churches um mentioned at the very beginning which are in uh asia minor um so you know there's um there's no question that anytime john writes there's going to be a mixture of readers both from his gospel his three um epistles and from you know the book of revelation um 
there's going to be a mixture of readers. John, I think knows that this is going to be widely read um, by everyone, but regardless of whether the person is a Hebrew or Greek, the Bible that they have predominantly is the, he is the, the, what we would call the old Testament. Um, and John in revelation references the old Testament hundreds, if not thousands of times. And some of them are outright quotes. And some of them are just veiled references that you go back and go, that's what he's pulling back on. But the, the, reader the the discerning reader that he kind of calls out at the end of the book is supposed to be well versed in his old testament literature um so we could say there's probably going to be a lot of greeks in uh asia minor there's probably going to be some diaspora jews there all of which are responsible to understand what he's referencing uh calling back to the old testament Okay, so the Greeks can call on their Jewish buddies and say, what does this mean? <laughs> well, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure. But I, I, I think that there are, well, there are plenty of references that, the, that, that should come easily to a, to a Greek person in a Roman Empire context. But, um, but I think also, um, let's just say they were probably a lot more well-versed on the old Testament than we are. Um, and I think this is part of what this, to be honest with you, I, I probably have a different view of, of revelation than many people uh, in this, in this chat here, I'm sure. Or, or some of you may be like, I don't even know. I don't even know where to start, you know, with the book of revelation uh, and that's okay. But, um, and so we, we, we can probably disagree on some things in here. Um, but I think one thing that I've noticed just, really a standard fare across the church as a whole is that our understanding of the old Testament is really weak. And so there's tons of references, tons and tons of references in revelation that are actually quoting old Testament passages or, or loosely citing old Testament passages. And we, we gloss right over it in revelation nine. We've got these demon uh, locust looking things that come up out of the abyss with mouths as lions and tails as scorpions. And I hear a lot of people interpreting those as like helicopters and things like that. And, and it's asinine. He's, he's, you know, he's quoting uh, Micah and Habakkuk. He's, he's quoting these old Testament prophets uh, and who actually reference these exact same things. And so it, it, it's important for us to understand our Old Testament and understand the context that the Old Testament prophet is speaking in, in order to understand John and in, in Revelation. And it's really hard. It's not easy. But that's the work you've got to do is to not just take what John is saying, but actually go back to where he got it, understand what it's saying there, and then go forward and apply it to the church context that he's writing to. It's difficult and it's challenging, but it's, it requires Old Testament knowledge. And I think they would have had it a lot more than we would. Uh, I got a question. Sure. If um, the garden had one, one gate entrance, correct? Say it one more time. One way in. The garden of Eden had one way in, yep. one way out. And Sorry, so did the so did the temple? Temple have one way in, one way out? 
uh, I mean, there are several entrances, gates, if that's what you're asking, all the way around. Yeah, because I was just curious. This this uh, new city has twelve gates. You know, it doesn't have just one. It's got twelve. Well, he so. he tells us he tells us what those gates are for, um, and the, and the foundation as well, built on the foundations of the prophets and on the foundations of the apostles' testimony of the gospel. Which is exactly what this new city is. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Michael, um, yeah. on the um, is there a particular um, book that you have um, note, noted on your selective selected works list yes. that explain that explains a lot of, of yes. these yes. images? goes through Which everything is- I've gone through in the last three weeks. Uh, the Temple and the Church's Mission by Greg Beale. By Greg who? Oh, okay. B-E-A-L-E. The Temple and the Church's Mission. Uh, now, I'll tell you, if you read that book, it is a it is a thick book and it is dense. But he does his his job. And, and I've, I've and I tell you, I've told you, you guys before that a lot of what I do on these worksheets is, is basically taking right out of these resources and just putting them in. And we walk through some of their arguments. Um, this is out of temple and the church's mission by GK Bill. And um, he, um, so he goes through at length showing the connection between temple garden and then end times temple. He also walks through Ezekiel's temple and what's going on there as well. Um, and I think it's a really helpful resource, but you know, Greg, Greg Beale is a, is a, he's a scholar. So he doesn't really hold back on a lot of these things, you know, so it's not necessarily, he doesn't trim back the language at all or anything like that, you know, but it, I think it's an incredibly helpful book. It's a very, very good, very good resource. And he's a, he's an incredible teacher as well. If you ever hear him teach, he's really good. I see Santa Claus bringing me that book. It's a great book. You'll be rewarded. Really, anything by him is 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 usually fantastic. He's a, he's just he's well researched, but he's just he's just thorough in his arguments and leaves no stone unturned. Very good. Any other things? Uh, speaking of stones, on in Revelation twenty one what 19 and 20 there are 12 specific stones mentioned i would assume every one of them has some sort of significance well um so a lot of them have connections back to the garment that the priest the high priest would wear uh he would have a 12 stoned square on his breastplate uh that had uh what what is that three across and four down um, that would be 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So a lot of those stones have connections back to that. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's one-to-one connection, but a lot of them are connected back to that. So you're not aware that, well, Jasper stands for this. and Yeah, there's, a couple, there's a couple that are mod, more modern. Uh, um, and I, I have them, I have at one point, I had them all written down and I'm not sure if I still do or not, but um, there were some that are called like, I, I could be wrong here, but like Carnelian in, in Revelation that are another 
I want to say red stone in on the the high priest breastplate. So it's not going to be a one to one um, necessarily correlation, but that's at least most of the thinking is that that's what he's referencing back to is these 12 stones that are called out. But yeah, I mean, you also notice too that precious gems play a, a strong role in, um, in a lot of um, the garden of Eden imagery, a lot of, you know, the temple imagery, a lot of that kind of stuff uh, is, you know, the preciousness, the beauty um, of those stones are kind of, uh, magnified, I guess you would say, even in, uh, I believe it's Ezekiel, as he describes the throne of God, he describes it in terms of precious stones and things like that. Um, emerald and Jasper shining carnelian, those kind of things. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's a, we just dipped our toe into the book of revelation. And so we made it out alive, I hope, but, uh, um, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to, we're going to go. I have a, a business and finance meeting coming up. So <laughs> get out of here. Uh, let's pray. Oh, heavenly, heavenly father, we thank you for uh, just the time to get together and to study your word. And I, and I pray for, um, what, what has been said tonight, what has been talked about that, um, that we as a, as a group would, um, hold a lot of, a lot of things that we, uh, anticipate about the time to come in an open hand. We know uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ will return. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he will dwell with us uh, forever, that we will be your people and that you will be our God. We know those things beyond the shadow of a doubt. All of us agree on those things. And there are, we know also other points that we may not see eye to eye. And so I pray for those differences that, that are, uh, that your word um, commands unity in your church, but not uniformity. And that we can be unified as brothers and sisters who celebrate uh, what, what Christ is going to do, what you've done through Christ. And we also know that we don't have to be uniform in our thought on everything. And that diversity inside the church in thought and discussion is good. And that you have created us in that way to be different and yet to love one another and to be able to celebrate in with one heart um, the God that we serve and the Christ that we love and to anticipate the day when Christ will return, when he will dwell with us uh, for all eternity, something that every single one of us agree upon and look forward to. And so we pray with Apostle John, uh, amen, come Lord Jesus, amen. All right, guys.